to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. This week was so full of breaking news, it's difficult to know where to begin. So let's just pick a starting point and take it from there. We woke up on Wednesday morning to learn the results of the Georgia runoff elections. It came as a shock to those of us who dared to hope for success for Republicans Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. In retrospect, it was really too much to ask, considering that the voting process for this election used the same mail-in ballots as they did in November and the same Dominion voting machines that had fudged the results against Trump and for Biden in the 2020 elections. Still, we hoped. So on Wednesday morning, we knew that we had lost the Senate. And that meant that the House of Representatives and the Senate and the White House, presumably, would all be led by Democrats. And that was sad news for Republicans and conservatives in America. But what happened next made it even worse because on Wednesday, the full House and Senate would hold a joint session to accept the Electoral College vote that named Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 elections. And we knew that there would be objections from a number of senators and over 100 congressmen. And so, for those Republicans and conservatives, there was still a final glimmer of hope that at least some of the damage from the 2020 elections could be repaired. Then on Thursday morning, if we didn't stay up all night to hear the debate, or what passed for a debate, we woke up to find that it was all over. Congress had accepted the Electoral College vote and... As Lindsey Graham said earlier in the day, that's it. It's over. So here's what happened. I know that my listeners already know the story, but what I want to do today on the Friedman Report is to go over what happened and then what it means. What it means for the future of America and for democracy here in this country that we love. So here goes. On Tuesday, the joint session of Congress convened in the Capitol to vote, first on the objections to the Electoral College Arizona electoral votes, then on to challenges to other states' Electoral College votes, and then whether to accept the Electoral College vote as it stood. But then, at 1.30 p.m., right in the middle of an argument by Senator James Lankford, a Republican from Oklahoma who was planning to object, at that moment, all hell broke loose. A mob of rioters charged into the Capitol building and terrified the assembled senators and congressmen who were quickly whisked away to safety by security personnel. In the end, the vandals broke windows, made themselves at home in the hall and in the offices of members of Congress. They took selfies. They did some significant damage. At least 55 people were arrested and four died. At least 14 members of the Capitol Police were injured. 
The first to die was Ashley Babbitt, an Air Force vet from California, from San Diego, California, and a Trump supporter. Not very much is known about the others, but without any doubt, more will be released in the next few days. The story is an ugly one. You know, I'm struck by the fact that from the very beginning, every one of Trump's rallies, some of which were attended by tens of thousands of people, they were all peaceful, despite the size of the crowds and how long they had been waiting. In some cases, there were people who spent the night before, sometimes in the rain, waiting in line just so they could attend his rallies. And even this one was peaceful until the very moment that the rioters broke through the crowd and invaded the Capitol. Let me say right here that there is no excuse for the kind of violence that occurred on Wednesday. This was a betrayal of everything that the Republicans and the conservatives stand for. We stand for law and order. We stand for respect for the Constitution and for the instruments that the Constitution has put in place in order to provide a better form of government than anything that was there before the Constitution was written. What happened in the Capitol on Wednesday was also against everything that the Trump campaign had stood for. Trump's campaign had been characterized by its nonviolence, and we've talked about this before. Even though there were thousands of people, sometimes tens of thousands of people, who attended these rallies, the crowds were respectful and orderly, sometimes rowdy, sometimes loud, but never violent. And they even picked up their trash before they went home. They didn't leave the city where the rally was taking place covered in trash and debris. This was in stark contrast to the riots and destruction that accompanied the so-called demonstrations of BLM, the darlings of the left, and their more violent allies, Antifa, who were never chastised by the left, but were allowed to destroy whole neighborhoods in more than a dozen cities around the country. But getting back to Wednesday, although it is true that the people who support Trump so passionately have been deeply frustrated by the inability of the Trump team to break through the wall of silence that has protected the election process. Such an action of violence, however, and disrespect would be totally out of character for most of the people who attended his rallies. And in this case, such an attack would certainly ensure the passage of the Electoral College votes as they stood, which is exactly what happened. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Senate reassembled several hours after the attack, and they began to debate the challenges, the objections, to the Arizona electors. Every senator had five minutes in which to speak, and speak they did. I won't recount every speech, of course, but I will give you a few highlights in order to illustrate what happened there and why it matters. Senator Ted Cruz was one of the first to speak. That was before the mob descended on the Capitol and disrupted the proceedings. He said this, We are gathered at a time when democracy is in crisis. He reported that 39% of Americans believe that the election was rigged. That number included 31% of independents and 17% of Democrats 
who believed that the election was rigged. He pointed out that this was nearly half the country. And he said, quote, this is a profound threat to this country and to the legitimacy of any administration that will come in the future. What does it say to nearly half this country that believes that this election was rigged? If we vote not even to consider the claims of illegality and fraud in this election, unquote. It was a fair question and an answer, a real thoughtful answer, would have been helpful. But Senator Charles Schumer, a Democrat, made an impassioned speech full of righteous indignation in which he held the president personally responsible for what happened in the Capitol on Wednesday. Make no mistake, my friends, he said, today's events did not happen spontaneously. The president who promoted conspiracy theories that motivated these thugs the president who exhorted them to come to our nation's capital egged them on. He hardly ever discourages violence and more often encourages it. This president bears a great deal of the blame. This mob was, in good part, Trump's doing, unquote. He failed to mention that Trump's rallies, as I said before, and even the huge one that took place on Wednesday, were always incredibly, unbelievably peaceful. Loud, boisterous, yes, but overall peaceful. And when he suggested that they move down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Capitol, they were still peaceful. He had no reason to believe they would be anything else. But it is impossible, it seems, for the Democrats not to blame the president for everything bad that happens. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, said... This mob was inspired by a president who cannot accept defeat, unquote. And Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland, went even further, and he also blamed the rest of us. He said, quote, Donald Trump could not do this alone. He could only do it if he's aided and abetted by individuals who are willing to perpetrate those lies and those conspiracies, unquote. I stand guilty of what he is accusing me of because I did support those accusations of election fraud and vote theft. I did because there were mountains of evidence to support it. I'm an analyst and I review all the evidence. But it's easier, it seems, for the Democrats to simply brand them as lies, not consider the evidence, and try to move on. So on Wednesday, Democrat senators, one after the other, talked about false claims and lies, and they called the vandals who invaded the Capitol Trump's thugs. Ah, yes, the lies and conspiracies. That is what the anti-Trumpers call the claims that there was fraudulent activity in the 2020 elections. And they say over and over again, that there is not a shred of evidence to support those accusations. We'll get to that in a moment, but before we do, remember that there were senators, other than Ted Cruz, who were ready to object to the electoral colleges from Arizona. But those moments of fear that our congressmen and senators felt as they were herded down into the tunnels that are their safe places deep under the Capitol building, that fear colored everything that happened next. Because with the exception of a very brave few, like Senator Cruz, 
the Republican senators who had promised to vote for objections retreated. Senator Kelly Leffler, who had just lost her own election to the Senate for the coming term, she tried to explain why she was changing her vote. She said, quote, When I arrived in Washington this morning, I fully intended to object to the certification of the electoral votes. However, the events that have transpired today have forced me to reconsider, and I cannot in good conscience object to the certification of these electors. The violence, the lawlessness, and the siege of the halls of Congress are abhorrent and stand as a direct attack on the very institution my objection was intended to protect, the sanctity of the American democratic process. I believe that there were last-minute changes to the November 2020 election process and serious irregularities that resulted in too many Americans losing confidence not only in the integrity of our elections, but in the power of the ballot as a tool of democracy. Too many Americans are frustrated with what they see as an unfair system. Nevertheless, there is no excuse for the events that took place in these chambers today and I pray that America never suffers such a dark day again. Though the fate of this vote is clear, the future of the American people's faith in the core institution of this democracy remains uncertain. We as a body must turn our focus to protecting the integrity of our elections and restoring every American's faith that their voice and their vote matters. America is a divided country with serious differences, and it is still the greatest country on earth. There can be no disagreement that upholding democracy is the only path to preserving our republic. Unquote. Her words were moving, and she received a round of applause for her remarks. But she missed the point. Her objection to the election results was based on what she called last-minute changes to the November 2020 election process and serious irregularities. And that had nothing to do with the violent assault on the Capitol that day. Her objection stood on its own merits, and it should have been heard. America deserved to hear them. And she was followed by many others who had promised to object to the Electoral College votes from Arizona and then backed off. Senator Roger Marshall, a Republican from Kansas, recommended the creation of a commission to study the issue. He said, I rise today to restore integrity to our republic. We must restore faith and confidence in one of our republic's most hallowed patriotic duties, voting. Our U.S. Constitution empowers state legislatures to execute three legal and fair elections. Unfortunately, in several states, the clear authority of those state legislatures to determine the rules for voting were usurped by governors, secretaries of state, and activist courts, unquote. But he stopped short of challenging the electoral votes of those states. Instead, he said rather enigmatically, I think, quote, I don't rise to undo a state's legally obtained electoral college votes. Rather, I rise in hopes of improving the integrity of the ballot to hold states accountable to the time-proven constitutional system of electoral college, unquote.
but he never said how. Senator Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, went even further. He said, quote, America is the most exceptional state in the history of the world, and the Constitution is the greatest political document that's ever been written, unquote. But having said that, he was critical of his colleagues who wanted to object to fraudulent election votes. He claimed that what they said in public and in private were two very different things. He said, I haven't heard a single congressional Republican allege that the election results were fraudulent. Not one. Unquote. I guess he hadn't been listening very hard. Senator Michael Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, cut to the chase. He said, it was his hope that the way we respond is the biggest bipartisan vote we can in support of our democracy, in support of our Constitution, and in rejection of what we saw today. You know, there's more, and we'll get to it in a bit, but it is amazing to me that these senators were unable to disentangle the events of the morning, frightening as they may have been, from the real issue of what they were all there in the Capitol to discuss. To address the accusations of election fraud in several states that could have altered the results of the election, and then ultimately to vote to accept or reject the Electoral College vote tally as it stands. The charges were serious, and they deserved to be addressed. Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, showed a bit more courage when he took on the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He said that Pennsylvania's elected officials had passed a law that allowed mail-in balloting, but that that law was contrary to the state's constitution that prohibited universal mail-in ballots. But when Pennsylvania citizens objected to this law, because it went against the state's constitution, and they took it to the state Supreme Court. The court dismissed it on a technicality, timeliness, which went against the court's own precedent. And the bottom line was that the merits of this case, just like so many other cases dealing with voter fraud, the merits of this case were never heard. And Josh Hawley ended with this statement, quote, And I hope that this body will not miss the opportunity to take affirmative action to address the concerns of so many millions of Americans, that this body will act to address the concerns of all Americans across the country. We do need an investigation into irregularities, fraud. We do need election security reforms so that the American people from both parties, all walks of life, can have confidence in their elections, and that we can arrange ourselves under the rule of law that we share together, unquote. So he, too, never reached the point of actually objecting to the Electoral College votes that were, in his own formally stated opinion, fraudulent and suspect at best. Then Senator James Lankford, Republican from Oklahoma, came closest to an objection. He said, quote, 
a small group of senators, including myself, have demanded that we not ignore the questions that millions of people are asking in our nation. So we have proposed a constitutional solution. Pause the count. Get more facts to the states before January 20th, unquote. But we never got to hear where he was leading because his remarks were interrupted by the invasion of the mob before he could finish his thought. Later on when they reconvened, Senator Jean Shaheen, Democrat from New Hampshire, went on a tirade. She said, It's important that future generations in America, like democracies everywhere, depends on a peaceful transition of power, on believing in what the voters say, and in assuring that happens, unquote. And then she accused senators, who she said, who have been enabling President Trump's willful disregard of the votes of our citizenry. Future opportunists may use this ill-fated effort to achieve short-term political gains over the long-term stability of our great country. And then she called for free and fair elections and set aside this partisan attempt to subvert the will of the people, unquote. You know, there was a lot of talk on Wednesday about the will of the people. But my question to them is this. What is the will of the people? There's a huge amount of evidence, thousands of sworn affidavits, evidence from forensic computer experts, evidence from videos, and evidence from the inspection of voting records, open, blatant rule changes that undermine the integrity of the elections, and evidence that no one on the left, no one in the mainstream media, and incredibly, no one in the courts were even willing to acknowledge, no less listen to or read. And if any of this interference with the electoral process actually did take place, and I believe it did, then how can we possibly know what the will of the people actually is? If we don't know, that the results of this election were accurate or fair or honest. And here's another thing. The fact that we don't know what the will of the people really is is because it was the left, the politicians, the judges, the press, the social media, all working overtime to suppress any information or news or reports about the possible corruption of the election process. And there certainly was a lot of evidence that just never got out into the public so that voting Americans could make up their minds based on facts. Senator Angus King, independent from Maine, said that the people in Wednesday's demonstration were talking about how the election was stolen. And he said they believed that because the president told them that. No, Senator King, they believe that because all of the evidence pointed to it. If you'll only take a minute and look at it, because the evidence is overwhelming, but it is only overwhelming if you actually look at it and consider it and take it into account. And a fair and unbiased look at the election process and the results that follow would tell you that plain old common sense 
raises more questions than answers about the entire election process and the results. One of the things that was particularly interesting to me throughout this whole experience since November 3rd was the uncompromising determination on the part of the left, and particularly on the part of the mainstream and social media, to ignore everything that might somehow compromise or denigrate their political positions and the candidates that they chose to support. And so they systematically ignored or stifled anything negative about the left, about Biden and his highly questionable family ventures, about Kamala Harris, or about the election in general. And most important, they deprived the American people of the information they needed to make informed decisions. So let's do a little recap of how we got to where we are now. Have you noticed how when all the left-wing media refers to our claims of election fraud, they all use the same words? They call it baseless or discredited or unfounded, or simply they call it false or lies even. But the left-wing media doesn't cover any real news about the actual claims or about the hundreds of sworn affidavits from eyewitnesses and accredited investigators who have actually seen and reported evidence of fraud on a grand scale. And it seems that all the media on the left has been scripted to use the exact same words to describe these claims. The words baseless, unfounded. But their words baseless and unfounded are baseless and unfounded. And they're totally devoid of any truth. And that's what's interesting. Because they ignore the truth, and then they claim that they're ignoring the truth is the truth. And what's even more interesting and deeply disturbing is that the courts seem to have joined the media on the left because they have uniformly refused to hear any arguments about the evidence, and in fact, they have almost unanimously rejected almost every case, not on its merits, but on technical grounds. And that included the United States Supreme Court, which refused to hear two different cases on technical grounds, mostly on the basis of the plaintiff having what they call standing, which means simply that the persons bringing the lawsuits don't have the right to do it. That's absurd because all of these lawsuits have been brought by lawyers. Some of them are mighty fine lawyers. They're some of the best. But somehow they all missed the same class in whatever law school they went to. That class when they talked about the rules of standing. They all missed that class. That's also hard to believe. Just like the triple scanned ballots and the flipped votes and the thousands of Trump votes that miraculously turned into Biden votes, and the masses of ballot that miraculously appeared at 4 a.m. in the morning on November 4th. It's all quite amazing and very, very disturbing. And it needs to be addressed. So my question is, what happens to justice in America when the American people have no recourse to it? When the election laws of the state are purposely broken as they were in Pennsylvania and Georgia, for example, and when the courts refuse to hear the evidence, although there's plenty of it, where do Americans go for justice?
And what hope is there for this country? We'll talk about that more right after the break. So don't go away. I'll be right back. My fellow Americans, we sure do love our convenient shopping options. But what happens after we buy? Are the products coming from China or overseas, thereby putting our fellow Americans out of business? Are the profits being sent to groups like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, groups that intend to destroy the freedoms that we enjoy? Well, listen, I'm an avid consumer just like you are. But I've realized that we need to think before we buy. Shopping should be convenient and easy, sure, but we need to be able to follow the money. Well, ShopToTheRight.com. It's brand new. It's a new shopping platform featuring American companies with a focus on products that are made right here in America. Well, listen, this is a novel idea and one that I believe will start to become more popular and create a shopping revolution. ShopToTheRight.com. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. You know, I'd like to take a little sidetrack here. Because as I listened to the Senate debate on Wednesday evening, I was struck by a bit of deja vu. And this goes back a few years. In November 1977, Egypt's President Anwar Sadat made an historic visit to Jerusalem, Israel. Now, Israel and Egypt had been at war since Israel's founding in 1948. In fact, on the day of Israel's creation, May 15, 1948, Egypt was the first country to attack the newborn state with an aerial assault. But now, 29 years later, after several wars between them, Israel and Egypt were looking 
for peace. Begin and Sadat had reached out to each other, and this first visit by Sadat to Jerusalem was historic. In Israel, there was a sense of celebration. It was almost euphoric. There were flowers and signs and greetings to Sadat, welcoming him to Jerusalem, to Israel. Sadat met with Israel's Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, and he prayed at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and he visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial. And then he went to Israel's parliament, the Knesset, to give his speech. He spoke in Arabic, and he explained how they had arrived on that day. He said, I have shouldered the prerequisites of the historical responsibility, and therefore I declared on February 4, 1971, to be precise, that I was willing to sign a peace agreement with Israel. He continued, This was the first declaration made by a responsible Arab official since the outbreak of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Motivated by all these factors, dictated by duties of history and leadership, we signed the first disengagement agreement, followed by the second disengagement agreement in Sinai. Then we proceeded trying both open and closed doors in a bid to find a certain path leading to a durable and just peace. We opened our hearts to the people of the entire world to make them understand our motivations and objectives and to leave them actually convinced of the fact that we are advocates of justice and peacemakers. Motivated by all these factors, I decided to come to you with an open mind and an open heart and with a conscious determination so that we might establish permanent peace based on justice. And then when his speech was over, he explained in the simplest terms why this was so important to him. He said, quote, To me, this land is holy. And of course, he was referring to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Muslim historical attachment to the land. And then Menachem Begin said to him, quote, To me, this land is holy. And he was referring to the Jewish history in the land, going back 4,000 years, to the Temple Mount, to the return of the Jews from the diaspora to their ancient homeland. They said the same words, but they meant different things. And that is what I heard this week as the Democrats and the Republicans talked about the Constitution and democracy, and they meant totally different things. For Republicans, and particularly for conservatives, the Constitution is a document to be deeply respected. It is a guide for our nation to keep us safe and secure within a set of guidelines hammered out by men who were conscientious in their efforts to create a document that would live and be a blueprint for generations of Americans. For Republicans, the Constitution is a celebration of life and liberty and guarantees every American the opportunity to pursue his or her dreams. The Democrats seem to view it differently. They seem to see the Constitution 
as a document that is changeable, renewable, revisable, one that can be altered to fit the times. And so the Democrats are talking about limiting our freedoms, taking over parts of our lives in education and welfare, imposing higher taxes, more regulations, and imposing stricter laws. This they promised. I'm not making this up. This is not conjecture. This is what they have promised. Like land use laws, gun control laws, and new laws expanding the scope of abortion to newborn babies, and more. We'll be talking about this a lot more as time goes on. But for now, let's talk about the news, and more important now, what it means. On Thursday morning, when we woke up to understand that Joe Biden would be America's 46th president, we had to come to terms with reality. We had hoped for a different outcome, but we didn't get it. And President Trump now promised that there would be a peaceful transition between administrations. This is a big deal, my friends. The president fought long and hard to achieve justice in the face of rampant fraud. And he lost this battle, and it must have been a very hard loss for him. Because since November 4th, when we began to see how much fraud had taken place over the course of this election and on election night and during the days that followed, and we believed that there could be justice, the president kept fighting and we encouraged him to fight because we believed in our system of justice. But then when our court refused to hear the evidence, refused to take witness testimony, sworn affidavits, then we began to question what was happening to America. I want to say a few words about the president and his administration over the last four years. Now, this, of course, is my opinion but I think many of you will agree with me. President Trump has been remarkable. He has shown amazing fortitude and courage in the face of constant harassment, attacks on his integrity, attacks on his honor, attacks on his honesty, attacks even on his family, and attacks on every area of his work as president. And yet he persevered. And yet he kept on fighting. And he kept on fighting for us, the American people. He put up the wall to keep us safe from the onslaught of illegal immigrants coming in droves through Mexico across the border. So he built that wall as he promised he would. And he recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And he moved our embassy there, as he promised he would. And then he forged a new kind of peace plan. Normalization between Israel and Muslim countries throughout the region. The United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and then Sudan and Morocco and more to come, maybe. Now, 
His idea was ingenious. He threw out the old template that required peace with the Palestinians before anything else. But the Palestinians wouldn't cooperate. They weren't having any of it. And they walked away from the table. So he made a new plan. This was ingenious. And it worked. And it's working. And more countries are coming to the table. And Donald Trump created jobs. He created incentives for corporations who had moved their operations overseas to come back with tax incentives that would help them to repatriate their operations. And they did. They came in droves. And with the return of these companies, he was able to rebuild our manufacturing industry base. Manufacturing, the one that Barack Obama said it would take a miracle to restart, and that America without manufacturing was the new normal. But Trump did it, and he created a new trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, an agreement that was far better than NAFTA that had destroyed so many jobs in America. The list of accomplishments of Trump's administration is long with hundreds of items of things that he did that made this country better. He gave a second chance to first offenders imprisoned for nonviolent crimes, for victimless crimes, but who received long, completely inappropriate sentences. And he gave them a second chance to get out into the world and do better. He created an economy that exploded under his watch and created millions of jobs, not part-time jobs, not temporary jobs, but full-time salaried jobs that could become careers. And he did that in the millions. He raised the employment levels for blacks, for Hispanics, for Asian Americans. He raised it to record levels and lowered the unemployment level more than anyone thought possible. He lowered taxes for the middle class and increased the average income by thousands of dollars a year. His administration stood on a policy of America first. That means take care of Americans before you take care of the rest of the world. And that's what he did. And we owe him a great debt of gratitude for giving us a better life for the first three years of his administration. And it would have gone on had it not been for the China virus that invaded our shores in January 2020. But even then, he was there for us. On January 31st, he closed off travel from China so that Chinese travelers would not come and spread the virus here. And then he began using our industry to produce needed respirators and PPE. And he fast-tracked the development of vaccines and therapeutics. And we already have, in less than a year, two vaccines which are out there and making America safer. He did all this. 
Not only doesn't he get credit for it, he gets slammed for it on a daily basis. The Democrats say he did a lousy job taking care of America in the face of the virus. And they blame him for the deaths that happened as a result of this virus, even though the casualty rate would no doubt have been much higher had he not done everything that he did. And now we are in a better place because the vaccines are out there and the therapeutics are coming. And we will be, because of Donald Trump, in a much better place than we would have otherwise been. Because Trump was not a politician. That's very clear from his tweets. If we considered him a politician, we would have to say that he's probably one of the worst politicians in the world. He's not. He's very unpolitic. And he says things in his tweet that I, for one, wish he wouldn't. But he said something on Wednesday that made me very proud. I'm proud that I supported him, and I'm proud that I support him now, because he said that there would be a peaceful and lawful transition between administrations. This must have been painful for him. He fought very hard for his second term. But after the vote in the joint session of Congress, and although the evidence to support fraud in this past election was very clear, and very convincing for anyone who took the trouble to look at it. He gave in gracefully when he knew he was out of options. This has been a terrible chapter in American history, and it continues because the fraud has not been resolved. It has barely been acknowledged. And this is going to be a stain on American history for a very long time. As an American, I am grateful that Donald Trump did the honorable thing on Thursday morning. I'm glad that he did not choose to fight this corruption, this fraud, this blot on American history any longer, because it would likely have brought us to the brink of civil war. And that is certainly not in the best interests of America. Throughout his entire administration, Donald Trump has tried to keep the best interests of America and of Americans front and center. And I think he accomplished that. So now, following the events of Wednesday in the Capitol, or maybe because of them, we begin a new chapter. Joe Biden's election has been certified by Congress, and those of us who don't agree with the Democrats' policies as they have laid them out are going to be in for a bumpy ride. What has happened in America didn't begin in 2020. It has been going on for the last four years, and it has been a massive conspiracy to delegitimize a duly elected president in every way possible and pull the teeth out of our powerful Constitution by completely ignoring it when they think it is in their best political interest to do so. And I'm talking about the Democrats in Congress. I'm also talking about the press, the media, the social media, and the people in Hollywood who think they know better how we should live. 
Funny, isn't it? Since they earn their living creating fantasy. What do you suppose they know about reality? And what gives them the superior intelligence to think that they can tell us how to run our lives? What the Democrats and the media and the social media and the liberal elite tried to do to President Trump wasn't just taking pot shots at a guy who they didn't like. This has been a systemic assault on a sitting president by lying, trying to frame him, setting him up for accusations of treason, and impeaching him on trumped-up charges that had no basis in either fact or truth. In fact, you know what? The entire charade was one of projection, where the Democrats accused the president of doing the exact same things and committing the exact same crimes that they themselves had done. We saw it very clearly in the insane impeachment process, where they blamed Trump for trying to extort the president of Ukraine for information on Joe Biden. So they made up an entire telephone conversation between Donald Trump and Ukraine President Zelensky, and they based their charges on that false conversation. The real irony is this. It was Joe Biden who did, in fact, extort the Ukraine government. He threatened to withhold a promised billion-dollar loan guarantee from the United States government unless they fired a prosecutor who was investigating the company that was providing Joe Biden's son, Hunter, with a very fat check every month just for sitting on their board of directors and, although they don't talk about it, giving them access to his father, who was, at the time, Vice President of the United States. Quid pro quo. Plain and simple. And then he bragged about it. On video. You've all heard it. It's no secret. And that is exactly what the Democrats accused Donald Trump of doing. And they wanted to impeach him for it. They have no shame. They regret nothing. Except that they couldn't succeed in making the charges stick. In impeaching him. So coming back to today, they decided to fix the election so that he couldn't get a second term. This isn't rocket science, my friends. This is what the Democrats have become. And it's shameful. And now the future of America depends on what they will do next. And their most recent attack has been, once again, to project their sins on the president by accusing him of trying to steal the election by contesting the election results, which he believed, and I believe, and maybe you do too, were fraudulent. In fact, as you all know, it was the Democrats who flagrantly and illegally perverted and corrupted our electoral system in as many ways as they could in order to ensure a victory in the November 3rd elections. Before the elections, we saw them buying votes. They harvested votes. They manufactured votes. They even woke the dead to resurrect their votes. And on election night, in some places, they stopped counting votes, sent their poll watchers home, and then continued to count illegal votes, all, amazingly enough, for Joe Biden. 
Do you remember how the Democrats behaved after Al Gore lost the 2000 election? They cried foul, and they whimpered and whined about how that election was stolen, even though in the end it was decided by the Supreme Court. And even worse, we all remember how abominably they behaved when Hillary lost in 2016 to Donald Trump. They refused to admit their loss and spent millions of taxpayer dollars to exact revenge on him. And that, no doubt, is what the Mueller investigation was about and the impeachment investigation and the impeachment trial. It was all about revenge. And it continues until now. It will be interesting to see if the Democrats lighten up at all now that they have won their election and have put a Democrat president in the White House. We'll see. I'm not hopeful. My friends, there has never been in the history of this country a more comprehensive or deeply seated conspiracy to delegitimize an entire administration from the president on down as well as delegitimizing our 2020 national election by every means possible. Of course, they think they're justified. They think we're crazy. But they're wrong on both counts. And now we have come to the final moments of this terrible point in American history because on January 20th, Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the 46th president of a deeply divided United States. So now that we have gone through the steps that we took to get here, let's look at what is likely to happen in a Biden-Harris administration. We already know some of the landmarks because they've told us. Gun control, for example. They've told us that they want to tighten the restrictions on the purchase of guns and ammunition that they want to limit what guns you can buy and how many. And they're talking about confiscation, or to put it more politely, gun buyback of anything they deem to be more dangerous, possibly because of the way it looks, like an AR-15, for example, which is a rifle, but looks more like something scary to people who don't understand about guns. Or let's take abortion. They call it a woman's right to choose. And they call it woman's health care without any concern for the health and well-being of the living, breathing baby that they're about to kill. And they insist that abortion should be legal from the time of conception all the way up to the time of birth when a live baby is born and yet a doctor and a mother can decide whether he or she lives or dies. I call that murder. But that's another discussion for another day. And then they want to change the language. Nancy Pelosi has already said that she wants to take gender distinctions out of the language that is used in Congress. So we would no longer have the words mother or father, which are gender-related, and instead they would use the word parent, or they would no longer say boy or girl, they would use the word 
child or man or woman, and they would use the word person and so forth. This is insane, my friends. This is something that is so invasive, so intrusive, and so completely unacceptable. There's nothing wrong with our language. It is a beautiful and powerful language, and we should use it to its maximum capability, not sterilize it and deprive it of its power. We have gone so far overboard on our gender inclusiveness that we are destroying our children's lives. We are destroying their education. We are destroying the possibility of the future of this country because when the people who are now children in our educational system grow up to be adults, they will be dysfunctional. They will not be able to read and write. They will not be able to do simple arithmetic that will guide them through their lives. They will not be able to do the tasks or make the decisions that are necessary when you lead a full and meaningful life. We've seen it. We've seen the products of our educational system on the streets of Portland and Seattle and New York City and Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco. It goes on and on. And we haven't seen the end of it yet. But these children, now adults, but still children, think they are entitled to things they haven't earned and think that we must give it to them because they are entitled, because that's how they were brought up. These children don't know history, so they tear down our monuments and they don't understand our traditions and the meaning of history in our lives. So we have our work cut out for us. And yet, right now, at this moment in history, we are at a disadvantage because the seats of power are now being filled by the Democrats who have a different view of our future than we have and who will spend the next two and four years trying to make their view of our future and taking away ours. So our task is very clear and we have to think it through very carefully. How to save the America that we know and love without sowing the seeds for a civil war. How to keep America whole and safe in the current crisis. We'll talk a lot about this in the coming weeks and months. Well, the hour is up. Thank you for spending it with me. And pray with me for the future of America. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.